Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. There are lots of reasons the issue of freight is fraught in landlocked Central Asian countries. Add to that list sanctions on neighboring Russia, and that makes shipping goods even harder. We examine the plans to plot new rail routes across the region. And here in London, thousands have been lining up overnight to see Queen Elizabeth II lying in state. Our correspondent speaks with the waiting crowds and asks whether a good old-fashioned queue is the best way to allocate a scarce regal resource. But first... In a refugee camp in Bangladesh, Rohingya migrants have been rallying to mark five years since their brutal expulsion from Myanmar. This woman describes how the Burmese army killed her husband and says children were snatched from their mother's laps before being killed. She says the world has ignored the Rohingya's pleas for justice. The Rohingyas are a Muslim minority in a mainly Buddhist country, and they've been targeted for decades. Now their situation is grim both for those who fled Myanmar and those who remain in the country, and it shows no prospect of getting better. For decades, the Burmese army has wanted to rid the country of Rohingyas, and it is slowly but surely accomplishing that goal. Charlie McCann is our Southeast Asia correspondent. Before 2017, Myanmar was home to about 1.3 million Rohingyas. Now their population is closer to 600,000. And let's wind back a bit in time. How did this reduction in numbers begin? Well, the Rohingya have been subject to persecution and violence for decades. In 2012, for instance, mobs of villagers from Rakhine State, along with the Burmese army, raised Rohingya villages, killing hundreds of them. And the Burmese army corralled about 140,000 Rohingya into camps where they have remained ever since. Five years later, there would be an even bigger campaign of bloodletting, one in which the Burmese army just reduced Rohingya villages to ash, raped women and children, and basically provoked this exodus of about 750,000 Rohingya across the border into Bangladesh. 
The border guards could do little but watch as this tide of people swelled across the border. What we can see on the other side of the border, a huge, massive firing is going on. We heard the sound, and due to that effect, you can see a number of Rohingya people. They're coming down along the hills, along the barbed fence. They're sitting, you can see right near to the zero line. We do not know exactly what happened on the other side. Well, looks like something wrong is there taking place. So these innocent civilians, especially women and children, they're rushing in numbers. These people are, are in what is now the world's biggest refugee camp. And you mentioned that there had been this pressure on the Rohingyas for four decades. What does that stem from? The Burmese army, which has governed Myanmar for most of the last 50 years, does not believe that the Rohingya are Burmese citizens. It regards them as illegal immigrants from Bangladesh. It's a view shared by many Burmese. And it enshrined that view in law several decades ago, making Rohingyas the world's largest community of stateless people. But it wasn't until about a decade ago that the government actually began to herd Rohingyas into camps. And on top of this segregation, it has issued many repressive laws that, you know, restrict the ability of Rohingyas to marry freely, that has placed caps on the number of children they can have. And all of that amounts to what Human Rights Watch calls a system of apartheid. And so for those Rohingya who have been forced into these camps, what are the living conditions like there? They're really, really grim. So about a fifth of the Rohingyas who remain in the country are living in these camps, what one human rights group, Fortify Rights, has actually called modern concentration camps. Families are crowded into these very cramped structures that were only designed to last for two years. These people have now been in these structures for 10 years. And inevitably, a lot have been badly damaged by monsoons and flooding. Thousands of Rohingya are living in shelters which are structurally unsound. In April, the UN put the figure at 28,000. These living conditions are, by design, squalid, according to Human Rights Watch. And presumably, people are condemned to stay in those squalid conditions, and they're not allowed to leave the camps. That's by and large true. So about three quarters of these Rohingyas can't leave the camps. The rest can't go to very many places at all. They can go to what is effectively a Rohingya ghetto in the capital of Rakhine State, Sitwe, or they can go to Sitwe General Hospital. But it's very hard to get permission to go to the hospital. I mean, medical referrals are granted only for emergencies. And even then, getting travel authorization can take days. It's expensive. It costs up to 5,000 chat, which is $3.50. And, you know, sometimes security forces will insist that travelers present an identity card proving their citizenship, which most Rohingyas lack. They have to pass through a bunch of checkpoints manned by soldiers who often demand bribes, sometimes demand that they pay for a quote-unquote security escort that costs an extra 20,000 chat. For those who, who can't leave the camps, access to healthcare is even more limited. In the more remote camps, doctors will sometimes visit for just a couple of hours or once or twice a week. So, you know, it's unsurprising that rates of disease and child mortality are higher in the camps than elsewhere in the state. And what about the four-fifths of Rohingya in Myanmar who aren't in the camps? What's life like for them? Life is still very grim. About 350,000 or so Rohingyas do get to live in their own homes. 
but they're not allowed to leave their districts without permission. They have to abide by a curfew which lasts from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. There are rules that limit gatherings in public to five people. So they're kind of living in this permanent lockdown. And if they need medical attention, they rarely get permission to go see treatment at the general hospital in the Rakhine State Capital. And then there was this exodus of Rohingya into to Bangladesh after the horrific events in 2017. How have things gone on that side of the border? Rohingyas did at first find some respite in Bangladesh. The most recent crop arrived five years ago, but many refugees have been there for over 10 years, some for, for decades. And the Bangladeshi government has long since begun to view them as a burden. At first, it allowed them to work in the towns that surround the refugee camp, but now they need permission to leave. The authorities have banned paid work and private education. And to make matters even worse, there are these criminal gangs and militant groups operating within the camps that are regularly committing murders, kidnappings, robberies. And in fact, Bangladesh's security forces are implicated in this. They do much of the terrorizing according to human rights groups. I should note here that the Bangladeshi government did not respond to multiple requests for comment. The really depressing reality is that no matter which side of the border Rohingyas find themselves today, their experience is much the same. Uh, They're suffering from hunger and misery, and their lives are kind of hemmed in by endless barbed wire. And even if the Rohingyas were allowed to return to Myanmar, many would have no home to go back to. The authorities long ago bulldozed the ruins of their houses and sold the land to developers. I think in that image, you see the intent of the army when it comes to the Rohingya. They want to remove every last trace of that group. Charlie, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason. Can supply chains be more sustainable without losing performance, efficiency, and resilience? It's possible with GEP. With strategy-managed services and AI-powered software, GEP helps hundreds of market-leading companies build sustainable supply chains that are cleaner, greener, and highly effective. Supply chains that are good for the planet and good for your business. GEP. Software. Strategy. Managed services. GEP.com. Landlocked countries are particularly reliant on neighbors for getting goods in and out. In Central Asian countries, such as Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan, that means being dependent on Russia. Some newly proposed railway routes, though, could do away with that. One line would link Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan with China. That could be a big loss for Russia and its influence in the region, and potentially a big win for China. Well, at the moment, Central Asia does have some railway links to the outside world, but they were mostly built by the Russians, either in imperial times or when Central Asia was part of the Soviet Union. And their links to each other within Central Asia are not particularly good. Jeremy Page is The Economist's Asia diplomatic editor. At the moment, the major freight route between China and Europe goes from China via Kazakhstan and then through Russia. 
And that's become a pretty important conduit for trade in recent years. And it now carries the vast majority of China's railway trade with Europe, which was about $8 billion in 2016. And it's gone up to $75 billion as of 2021. But this new line would open up a new route from China to Europe, first going through Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan, and then passing through Turkmenistan, Iran and Turkey, and on to Western markets. And not only would that shorten the journey by some 900 kilometers in about eight days, but perhaps more importantly, it would completely skirt Russia. That's important because of the sanctions regime that, that Russia is under? Exactly. So Russia has become much harder to move goods across in the last few months, largely because of the sanctions imposed by Western governments following Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And that has caused a lot of uncertainty, particularly among European freight forwarders. And so they have switched, a lot of them have switched to a slower and more expensive sort of hybrid rail and sea route, whereby goods cross the Caspian Sea by ship, do the rest of the journey by rail, but they have to be loaded onto ships for that section in order to bypass Russia. So this this new route via Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan will provide an alternative, which is still cost-effective, completely non-Russian, rail-only, and would be equally effective in moving goods between China and Europe. And this would be especially beneficial for China, as it would give it a chance to diversify those railway trade routes and make sure that it can maintain sustainable rail trade with Europe, regardless of the situation in Russia. And presumably, it would also bring some benefits to, to the countries that this new route runs through. That's right. There is great hope, particularly in Kyrgyzstan, that this line will bring them some economic benefits. So, for example, I spoke with the transport minister of Kyrgyzstan, a man called Erkinbek Osoyev, who estimates that this new railway link would carry between 7 and 13 million tons of cargo a year. Most of that would be bound for other places, but Kyrgyzstan would get significant transit fees from that. And he thinks that those transit fees combined with taxes and the jobs generated by the railway would give Kyrgyzstan quite a significant economic boost. And that's important for a country like Kyrgyzstan, which is a former Soviet country. It's extremely remote and its population, which is about 6.7 million, depends very heavily at the moment on remittances from migrant workers in Russia. So this would give them an alternative source of income, but it would also help to reduce their dependence on Russia. But the Russian question aside, given all those benefits potentially on offer, why hasn't this kind of route been proposed before now? Well, it's actually been talked about for a long time. Plans were first drawn up as early as 1997, but they kept on running into the same kind of roadblocks with disagreements between China and Kyrgyzstan over the route and the costs. China basically wanted the quickest, shortest route possible to get to Europe, and Kyrgyzstan wanted it to stop off at more places within Kyrgyzstan so it could serve more of its population. So that was one problem. Then there were also differences over where to switch the gauge because China and Europe use a track that's 1.435 meters wide, whereas the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, uses a 1.52 meter standard. So that was another point of contention. So basically, the idea was repeatedly shelved because of those and other differences. But now it's getting a new push, partly because it seems to make more commercial sense, given the expansion of railway trade between China and Europe, and partly because of this desire to become less dependent on Russia. 
And so they've managed to, to work out those long-standing differences in the end. It seems so. The transport minister of Kyrgyzstan told me that there was an agreement on the route between China, Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan. They'd agreed on where to change the gauge at the track. And they've agreed on a provisional budget of $4.1 billion. So on paper, at least, it looks like it's going ahead. Geological surveys have started. They started in August. A group of Chinese experts has arrived in Kyrgyzstan to do them. And a feasibility study will be finished by March. That said, there are some major challenges ahead, particularly on the financing front. The president of Uzbekistan is also promoting another very ambitious railway project, which would build a line down from Uzbekistan through Afghanistan to Pakistan, which has been estimated to cost about $4.8 billion. And there is a fair degree of skepticism among diplomats and regional experts about whether these governments can really raise the funding for either of these railways. But there does seem to be real momentum, particularly behind the Trans-Kyrgyzstan Railway. And if either of these does actually become a reality, it really will be a very important step towards improving connectivity within the region and reducing its reliance on Russia. Thanks very much for your time, Jeremy. Thank you. If you like The Intelligence, give us a rating on your podcast app. And if you like The Economist, sign up for Economist Education's six-week online course on business writing and storytelling. Learn to write with clarity, punch, and pith, and gain the tools to become a more effective business communicator. The course is designed by many of the journalists you hear on the show. Register now and enjoy a 15% discount as a listener to The Intelligence. Go to economist.com slash writing course and use the discount code INTELLIGENCE at checkout. Since Queen Elizabeth II died last week in Scotland, a series of long-planned travel and memorial arrangements has been playing out. On Wednesday, the royal family marched behind her coffin as it travelled from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Hall at the Houses of Parliament. Since then, she's been lying in state, a tradition allowing members of the public a final goodbye before the funeral on Monday. The public has responded in a big way. When I headed out early this morning, the end of the queue wasn't far from my house, even though I live more than four miles away. I must have passed a couple of thousand more people walking to join the line. By the time I came back, it was close to five miles long. For me, it was a pretty stunning commitment to the cause. That's at least 14 hours worth of shuffling along. For my colleague Samaya Keynes, who hosts Money Talks, our sister show on business, finance, and economics, it's been an excuse to do some field research. I wanted to ask the obvious question for economist readers, which is whether queuing is the best way to allocate scarce resources, in, in this case, slots to see the Queen. So what was the queue like when you saw it? The queue was long. Um, the viewing of the Queen lying in state officially began at 5pm on Wednesday, September 14th. But the line actually started forming as early as Monday, September 12th. And so I went down to have a look once the viewings had started. 
I am currently just near Westminster Bridge, around halfway through the great British spectacle of the week, which is the queue. I'm roughly halfway through the queue, and it's moving relatively quickly. Um, I was expecting something much more sedate, but everyone's walking at a reasonable pace, feeling like they're making quite a bit of progress. Everyone's chatting, there are lots of marshals, police guarding the queue, making sure things are orderly. The queue had a pretty nice feel to it. I spoke to two men, Josh and Adam, who summed it up quite nicely. Uh, but it's, it's also a nice atmosphere. It's like a, it's a slow walk through all of London's landmarks and everyone's chatting to each other and all the volunteers and the police. It's, you know, it's quite an amazing atmosphere, I think. How much would you have paid to avoid the queue? If you could just buy a ticket? <laughs> Just turn up. I, I, think, I think it's part of the nice thing about this is that yes. money kind of isn't an object here. I think everyone's here to pay respects. It's yeah, free kind of a one, once in a lifetime or maybe twice in a lifetime um, kind of thing. And I think ethically it might have been a bit wrong. And we heard you there asking whether they would pay to skip the queue, which is, which is not very British. No, no, it is not. Us British do take pride in our queuing skills. But as an economist, the question I was trying to answer was how efficient this queuing system is. Because if you think about it, I mean, queues ration out spots to whoever turns up first, right? And, And whoever is willing to stand in line for hours. But although there may not be, you know, a a direct money price for a slot to see the queen, participants in the queue are still paying, right? They're just paying in time and comfort. And so the worry from an economic perspective is that the queue rations out slots to people who don't have much else to do with their time and excludes people who can't afford to skip work. And, you know, some people might struggle to stand in line for that long. Although actually in this case, there was a separate queue for disabled people so that that was meant to help with accessibility. But in general, queues do have some drawbacks. And of course, you went down there as a matter of doing your work, but presumably a lot of other people are there because they don't have work to do. Yeah, I did speak to a few retirees, one student, but I did find people working in the line. Here's Josh and Adam, who we heard from earlier. If you weren't in the queue, what would you be doing right now? I'd be at the office. I'd be at work. Uh, Yeah, exactly the same. And so have you taken holiday? Uh, I took half a day, but I have been doing calls. So we did a a couple of calls um, on on here, so it's okay. So a very efficient use of the queuing time. Yeah, a lot of of emails and calls in the queue. Okay, but still, either you don't have a whole lot to do or you can do your work while standing in the queue, but that's still not everybody. What What are the other ways that this could be done? Yeah, so an ideal system would essentially allocate spots to those who valued them the most and with everyone having an equal shot at getting a slot. So one alternative might have been some kind of lottery system. So you could have spots randomly allocated to a subset of people who were signing up. That was used for tickets allocated to a concert to mark the Queen's Platinum Jubilee in June. There is precedent there. Or you could have paid tickets. So you'd set the price such that people who are most willing and able to pay get the limited number of slots. And what did people make of that as a, as a potential alternative to, to standing there for hours? Yeah, it didn't go down very well. 
So one of my questions is um, essentially if there was no queuing system, um, I mean, I suppose if one had to kind of pay for tickets, would that yes. be a better system or would that be a worse system? Um, it would probably be a worse system because there are people who perhaps could not afford to do that. So I think it's, it's a good system doing it this way and those who want to and are prepared to queue and wait, and the British is very good at queuing, um, <laughs> will do so. What would you think if there was a paid ticketing system that didn't involve such a long queue? Oh, I'd, I think the queue is part of it, actually. It's part of the atmosphere. I'd much rather queue because you're, you're with like-minded people, paying your respects different ways. Um, I, I don't like the idea of a paid allotment. That doesn't seem quite right to pay your respects to the Queen. And I so. think maybe that would also exclude a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. It wouldn't be inclusive. Yeah. And that certainly wouldn't be something that the Queen would want. No. It's probably unsurprising that the people who chose to queue for many hours were also the people who really loved the queue. The grumblers presumably will have stayed at home. But it did feel very fitting that to mark this very British occasion, there was an opportunity for Britons to engage in such a stereotypically British activity. Samaya, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Chris Impey. Our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Sam Westron, Jat Gill, and John Joe Devlin. Stevie Hertz is our U.S. audio correspondent, and our creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Rory Galloway, Alizé Jean-Baptiste, and Kevin Kaners, with extra production help this week from Elna Schutz. We'll all see you back here on Monday. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.